0: Sarah Olson is Assistant Professor of Classics at Williams College, and Mario Talot is Professor of Classics and Critical Theory at the University of California, Berkeley. Together, they are the editors of Queer Euripides, the first volume to reconsider the entire corpus of an ancient canonical author through the lens of queerness broadly conceived. In part two of this episode, we delve into what Euripides play our guests would see in the ancient past, as well as the classical figure they'd bring to a desert island. Take a listen.
1: I was going to say, actually, going from like tensions and interesting conversations, as opposed to that, what are some other either common themes or readings that sort of bounced off each other in the volume that may have surprised you or or that you really enjoyed? I really enjoyed the process of organizing the sections that we created. They were not, in our original proposal, based on the abstracts we had from authors, they were a little different. And of course, as people write, arguments shift, things change. We had these conversations that I think influenced how some people thought about their chapters and thought about them in relation to each other. So organizing those, right? Because they could, again, could have gone so many different ways. And one of the parts of editing this volume that I really enjoyed was inserting all of the cross-references that we have throughout and talking with Mario about that, right? Going through and saying, see also this chapter, right, to try to embed in the volume itself, those other possibilities for how chapters might have been grouped together. And remember some of these histories, right, looking at it somewhere, around, oh, right, we thought about putting those together, and putting them in a different order. You know, temporality is one that we talked about quite a bit, so many of them could have fit under temporality, right, temporality and futurity. Futurity is a site to go back to tension, as Mario flagged, where There's disagreement, right? What does a queer future mean? Is there a queer future? Can you have queer futurity? What is the horizon of the future within Greek tragedy within these plays, as well as for queer theorists? And that comes up across so many of these chapters in different ways and with different answers to that question. So that could have been a heading for so many of them. And so to try to decide what temporality meant, I think at times we played around with in order that would have organized chapters that engaged with past, sort of a looking back versus a looking forward. And that could have been generative. I could still sort of see where that would fit. But ultimately, that wasn't wasn't the direction we went. The section on reproduction, I think, has so much of futurity in it as well, and the future and temporality, but from that particular perspective.
2: Yeah, I also liked uh, the fact that there are some hints at possibilities of reinventing the traditional format of the scholarly chapter in this volume. Mm -hmm. For example, there is a dialogue between a scholar, Nancy Rabinovitz, and David Bullen, who, besides being a scholar, is also involved in the staging of tragedy. So he brought the perspective of the dramaturge and to an extent also of the activist, you know, and uh, of how staging, performing tragedy today can constitute a form of activism and how scholarly interpretation and production can, and production of a play can and to an extent should illuminate each other, should be in a constant dialogue so that uh, the adaptation of a play is not something that is uh, other from the text. And of course, an adaptation is a, a kind of new text in its own right, but it also allows us to see in what heuristically, for convenience sake, we call the original things that we did not see before. So this dialogue is one experiment. Another experiment is really about uh, turning the scholarly article into an essay, right? Especially in a discipline like classics, there is a tendency to dismiss the essayistic as non-serious, non-rigorous, non-scholarly. But If you go along that way, you start seeing interpretation as a kind of cold, detached act of connection or perhaps no connection with the text. While we wanted, you know, a kind of queer ebullience, a kind of queer exuberance to become part of the very texture of the writing. So that's something that uh, not only did we not discourage, but we also urge people to do. That's another reason that I'm particularly proud of this book, because even people who felt that they could not do that, because that's not something that the field traditionally encourages, actually felt that they had the opportunity to do it. So, you know, in a sense, the performance of queerness in the book is not just at the level of uh, interpretive engagement with the text, but it's also in the very form of the scholarly writing.
1: It's true for me. I love footnotes. It was hard for me to write this way, (laughs) to not write sort of exhaustively document everything or engage in other arguments in the footnotes, which I also love to do and we do in this field, but to really focus right on the reading that I was doing and try to shed some of that as an experiment. It was freeing. It was challenging and scary in the way that many freeing things are at first, but it was also really freeing. You know, and something else we did that was, again, a kind of twist on what the traditional scholarly companion might look like was to put Rhesus as early as we did. Euripides' Rhesus is a play that's generally not attributed to Euripides. It's very likely a later play in Euripidian style. In a companion on Euripides, you would usually find it at the very end or in a kind of appendix. And we just, we put that chapter quite early on and its author engages with these questions of authenticity from a queer perspective. You know, What does it mean for a play to be inauthentic, right? To be not Euripides, to be an imitation or a kind of false Euripides and so it's not that we ignore those questions and we're not making some claim about the authenticity of Rhesus or that it really is European but that rather it's, it deserves consideration within the European corpus in a way that's integrated rather than segregated into a final section. So that was another little twist that I kind of like.
0: Yeah, it really sounds like you guys are queering scholarship itself, right? And I think that classics is really having a moment in this respect, on TikTok and social media, in worlds that don't exist in the Academy, because I think the stories that you guys are dealing with lend themselves to the most dramatically, uniquely human circumstances that we can come across. You know, when you just, when you literally just describe the story of Heracles or or, I don't know Circe it just it can lend itself to some really joyful inquiries into the human experience through you know the kind of work that you guys are doing so you've been talking about this a little bit about just assigning scholars to different plays you know having to work with one contested ideas of queer future but I think another tension here is sort of that you're just dealing with different mediums right there's The critical analysis and the close reading of queer theory that you're doing into the text, but there's another thing to see them transformed into a play adaptation on the stage. You know, obviously one element is the adaptation's fidelity to the source material, but another is how the narrative can be reconfigured and and to what extent that approach creates a new story with new commentary or an added meaning to the original text So, I was just wondering, one, if there are any stage adaptations of Euripides' plays that you recommend, or do you feel like the adaptations themselves have changed over time in reflection to the kind of work that you guys are doing in your book?
2: Yeah, that's a very important and and complex point, especially because there is still, in the field of classics, a kind of breach between. What's called reception and the rest, right? As though reception studies represented, you know, a kind of appendix, you know, or supplement to the field of classics. There are those who are interested in the original. And again, I want to put the word original in scare quotes and those who are interested in remakes. Of the original, and of course, if you attribute to the quality of original only to the ancient text, you inevitably, you know, axiologically dismiss what is not the original. You're right, the adaptation, the remake, and so on. So uh, our chapters are structured around titles of uh, plays that immediately evoke the ancient text, but they never exclude their multiple remakes or adaptations. We have a chapter, you know, on Anne Carson's Hippolytus in relation to Hippolytus and Proust. We have, as I said before, a chapter which stages a dialogue between a feminist scholar of tragedy who has mainly worked on the ancient text but has also branched out in Reception, and a Dramaturge. We have other chapters who keep referencing, you know, modern adaptations, precisely because we want to look at the plays synoptically. And in a sense, we want to dismantle the opposition between the original and what came later. You know, the Medias Euripides, for me, is as important as the Medea of Alfaro. And in a sense, it's impossible to think today about the Medea of Euripides without thinking about the Medea of Luis Alfaro, which is about a woman who migrates from Mexico to the United States. And in this way, makes us see, you know, how Medea can become really an icon of the migrant. So that's why, you know, we decided really to create a sort of shared space. We did not want to have a section on reception, you know, because that would have meant to marginalize reception once again. And when people said to us, can we include elements of reception? We said, absolutely, precisely because you know, one of the principles of the queer unhistoricism that we embraced methodologically is precisely to see the text as containing already the possibilities of its multiple reception. So it would not make any sense not to constantly look at remakes, readaptation, translations, and so forth. This multiplicity is, in a sense, queer precisely because it problematizes the very idea of the original, the very idea of the norm, the very idea of what is legitimate. And it also stages constant relationality. It also problematizes the idea of the subject. There isn't just Euripides. There are multiple others You know, through history. So Euripides is kind of sparagmatically disseminated, you know, like Pentheus in the Bacchae between the multiple authorialities known or unknown with a name or anonymous that have engaged with this material.
1: Yeah, with regard to interpretation, Rebecca mentioned earlier, you know, there are so many things happening like on TikTok or on like modern sort of like retellings of the classics. I mean, are there any classicists or writers or even people working in other cultural mediums, like say video games or something like that, doing, you know, really interesting work, rethinking how we see
0: classics?
2: Well, I think that uh, one of the great things that the field of classics is going through at the moment is to make classics less Eurocentric, less white, let's say it. And I could mention, you know, besides the people whom we included, you know, in the volume, many of whom are actually central in these very important operation of reinvention of the field as more open, more diverse. And that can mean both in terms of the constituencies, you know, who are involved in the field, but also in terms of the methodologies that are used because opening itself up to people were not usually included, it means also to stretch the boundaries of the discipline, stretching the boundaries of what the discipline can do in terms of its epistemology. So I'm thinking of people like Daniel Pedira Peralta or Matura Umachandran or Emily Greenwood or Ellen Morales, or Shane Butler, and Alex Purvis, people who have really helped us change the field. Besides, as I said, the people who are included in the volume where it was very important for us to be as diverse as possible.
1: Yeah, I think if I can advertise for a moment, one of our contributors, Oliver Baldwin, <laughs> is currently working on a, a incredible and immense really research project, you know, resulting in a book on queer tragedy, on you know explicitly in some way, intentionally, consciously queer adaptations of Greek tragedy in the 20th and 21st centuries. I'm so excited for that project because I think its he's doing a lot of work in the archives. I think he's uncovering, you know, looking at work that has been available to us and productions and versions that we know, but also I think a lot of material that hasn't really been systematically unearthed and dealt with and considered. And so I, I speaking for myself, I am
0: so excited to, see, you know, for that work to see the light of day and, and open up our knowledge about these productions. That's so cool. Do you have any idea of when he would bring this on tour? Or is it is it super embryonic at this stage?
1: I think he is giving talks about it. So Oliver Baldwin, he's, you know, and I know he is active on social media. I am not. So the <laughs> limit of my knowledge. <laughs> but I think he's, he has given some talks and interviews about this material and is actively working on it. So, you know, it's another sort of exciting, emerging work in this field. You know, in the, also in the volume again, just to plug I, you know, completely agree and second everything Mario said about the trends in the field and some of the people whose work he highlighted. You know, among the people in the volume, David Bullen, who whose interview with Nancy Rabinowitz formed our chapter on a Fitch and I Among the Taurians, he works with By Jove Theatre Company. And in fact their chapter chapters about one of their productions. And again, that's another site where I think there's some really creative engagement with queer and feminist use of myth. And tragedy.
2: And both David and Oliver are actually contingent faculty. That is to say, differently from us who have the privilege of being tenured or about to be tenured faculty members. Yes, and Sarah, of course, fingers crossed, but it's a slam dunk. In any case, you know, we also wanted to include people who are not as privileged as we are in that respect. And uh, one should also perhaps point out that unfortunately there is a a connection between being a contingent faculty and working on edgy topics. You know, one of the great things about this book is that it's published with a mainstream publisher, but a very open-minded publisher. And it contains the work of established scholars, but uh, the presence of established scholars and the very materiality of the Bloomsbury imprint, we hope, can also be an opportunity for the field to review or revise what is perceived as serious, non-serious, as rigorous and non-rigorous topics. You know that are worth pursuing, and uh, topics uh, that one should not pursue as their first project, but as their second project. You know, so there is also a strongly political dimension to it that goes beyond, you know, the twists and turns, you know, of theoretical complexities or of uh, in interpretive debates, and it's really about. You know, how we reinvent, you know, the very foundations, you know, of uh, what it means to be a classicist, what it means to be a scholar, what it means to be in academia, what academic work should or can look like.
0: I think that's a really important, often unspoken point in all of this, of just... The politics of particularly American academia, but I I know that the UK is also moving in this direction of just corporatized education, just even thinking about how many projects have been stopped in their tracks because the departments have decided that it's not appropriate for tenure track faculty to write about. That's really interesting. And so I, I really appreciate the opportunities that you're creating for people in the field to who don't necessarily have the privilege of being tenure track, but also to, yeah, to give them the freedom to explore in an area where they otherwise would feel censored. And I also really appreciate the point you brought up about these lesser known plays, ones that really are not incorporated into the canon as much. I'm just, I'm very curious about that. I, I want to know just on a more personal level, if if you could go back to ancient Greece and, and see a play, a Euripides play, for in real life, do you have something in mind? Is it a B-track Euripides play, or what are we what are we looking at here? <laughs> I, You know, I feel like you have to say something like Medea
1: or Bacchae, right? I mean, why pass up the chance to see something? But you know, to your question about the B-list plays, I do feel that way about some of the plays I've worked on. So my chapter is on Andromache, which is another B-list play, one that doesn't get performed very often, isn't as widely read. And So many of the arguments that I myself make about these plays and about tragedy do relate to performance and the kind of possibilities of performance encoded within the text. And on the one hand, I think the texts we have are so rich in performative potential and they contain so many images and so much material that we can use to kind of imagine their horizons of performance. And yet we do not have access to that original fifth century performance, right? Or to any ancient staging. We even have limited access to stagings from 50 years ago, right? You know, it's it's always there's always a gap. So to be able to see some of these plays, some of these scenes that I've written about and understand how tone, how gesture, how touch worked, right? To kind of see, oh that's because what I'm attentive to are all the possibilities. How many, you know, if this then that, if Helen embraces Theonoe at this point, it would have this impact, but if she keeps her distance, it would be otherwise. So the opportunity to see scenes like that, you know, oh, that's how it was. I, of course, it's tantalizing.
2: I think I would like to have a conversation with Euripides about the finale of Medea, for example. We see her up in the air, so what is behind that? I, I gave my own reading of that scene, which is a very controversial reading, in my opinion, She's not really going to Athens, but she's stuck there. And uh, in a book I published recently, I made the argument that actually when she appears in the sky, you know, on her chariot, her chariot is like the car of Telma Louise. Believe me, I did make that argument, right? So in this, the end of Telma Louise, there is really the opening up of uh, the possibility of uh, queer being. Uh, I mean, the homoerotic energy between the two women that is so present but latent throughout the movie kind of becomes, uh, you know, explicit. Let's go into this together at the end when we see the car hanging up there or hanging on there. And that is, in a sense... uh, a halting of the very perspective of uh, a patriarchal return that I see also at the end uh, of uh, uh, Euripides' Medea. So I think that if I could, I'd like to have a conversation with Euripides about that. Not because I think that uh, if he disagreed with me, you know, my reading would not be legitimate, but just Because I I would like to really to have the opportunity to have a conversation about that, that moment that it's impossible for all of us to remove from our imagination after we read the play.
0: I would love to see quickly just an adaptation of Medea where they drive off of a cliff somewhere in Arizona.
2: uh... Yeah, I think it can be done. I think it's there to an extent.
0: I think you have a screenplay idea on your hands. Well, let's (laughs) see. (laughs) Just for a fun one, point of view, you're Cersei, you're pissed off
1: your dad who has now banished you to a desert island forever. Which classical figure and only one would you want to keep you company?
2: Let's see. That's a difficult one. There are so many. This can be like a mythological figure or a historical figure.
0: Yeah, you can choose a couple if you're having a hard time choosing just one.
2: Yes, I I think I would like to talk to Sappho, actually.
0: You'd like to talk to Sappho?
2: Yes, I think I would like to talk to Sappho, not to ask her anything about her personal life, but just to hear her speak. And I'm sure she would speak in the same way in which her poems speak. I mean, I, I have no problem saying that Sappho is the greatest poet of all times. And so I think that if I had the opportunity, I think I would like to talk to the greatest poet of all times.
0: That's a great answer. I think that's my answer, too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, and
1: then, can I steal that answer as well? It's a wonderful one. <laughs> Although, Mario, your answer before made me think that, especially after writing this volume, I would like to talk to Euripides as well. And I think, you know, you could do worse than somebody you know be stuck on a desert island with somebody who uh, allegedly managed to write more than 90 plays. At least you'd have a good
2: storyteller to keep you company. Well, Stafford, you repeat this is a great couple. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can a queer, queer couple. Family. A very a queer, queer couple. couple. <laughs> yes. Perfect.
0: Well, that's all we have time for today, but I just wanted to thank the both of you for coming thank on you. the show and talking about your work. It's So fascinating. For everybody listening, you can look up Queer videos on our show notes. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you you both so much.
1: We're so excited for you to read the books from all our amazing authors that we've talked to this season. Add Queer Europe to your cart on our website and enter code POD35 followed by the country codes UK, US, AU or CA depending on where you're located.